podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. It's quite possible you have never owned a T20 team, but you are probably still fascinated by how all that works. So for this episode of Red Inca, I went and got an IPL owner to talk us through the entire thing. Hi there, Jared. Manoj Badali, various titles. Today I'm chairman of the British Asian Trust because we're launching an emergency COVID appeal for India, but tomorrow I'm the lead owner of the Rajasthan Royals. We talked about how you make a team from scratch, run an organization suspended for spot fixing, his Moneyball fandom, why the team is trying to be the global IPL side, and the future of the tournament itself. It's also worth noting that Manoj is on the British Asia Trust. If you are in the UK and you want to donate some money to help people out in India during the pandemic, you can. There is a link in the show notes. I got you on partly because you wrote the book with Simon Hughes, and I was quite interested about it. One of my first questions about your book was, it's called A New Innings. Everyone run out and buy it straight away. But one of the (laughs) things I was most interested about was, like, it's called A New Innings, but you've actually been with Rajasthan for a long time. Why did you write the book now? Well, I mean, I've sort of been in and around cricket for an even longer time. We were investing in county cricket, which sounds like a strange thing to do. Back in 2005, we were you know, running a television show called Cricket Star in India back in 2006. So I've sort of been investing in and around cricket for a while. I think the the honest answer to your question is there are sort of multiple versions of the book, right? So it was a kind of multi-year product. And I first started to write things down about the experience in the IPL, frankly, because my business partner was so bored of hearing me come in every morning going, you couldn't make this up. You couldn't write a script. And I think it was just his way of getting me out from listening. So a lot of the stories were captured as the IPL journey. And there's no secret, the Rajasthan Royals has been an extraordinary roller coaster. Mm. I mean, we've been involved in termination and suspension, spot fixing. We've won it. We've come last. I mean, there's sort of nothing we haven't done. And you just want to capture those stories. But then I think during lockdown, there was an opportunity to wrap around those stories something useful, hopefully, around the business of cricket. Personally, I've always been interested in the business of sport. One of the consequences of the lockdown is suddenly the business of sport became mainstream because the economics of the game were laid bare. People were worried about the economics. The other sort of catalyst, honestly, was that 2019 was such an extraordinary year for cricket, arguably one of its greatest ever years. But yet, I personally feel we're at a really important inflection point And if we get three or four things right, the game could absolutely fly. And if we get three or four things wrong, you know, we could be back, you know, where we were a few years as a sort of struggling niche sport. Just to take you back to the start, you said you were involved in cricket for a while before that. And uh, obviously you were. But when did you first hear of the rumour that there was going to be this Indian domestic league with franchise owners and these sorts of things? Probably 2007, a long time ago now. But first I'd actually heard was was from Lalit Modi himself because he was the vice chairman of the BCCI when we had to get our television show endorsed by the BCCI. So that's where the sort of relationship began. And he made no secret of, and in fact, I think he tried in 2004 to get a City League going. So there was no secret. The ICL came along and he made it clear that the BCCI were going to respond. But as I remember it, The original plan was to launch that in 2009. And so what changed everything was India winning the World Cup 
in, I think, again, it was October 2007 in South Africa. And that, coupled with the fact that the ICL was starting to get overseas players, and then, you know, Lalek called me up one day and said, oh, by the way, those plans I told you about, we're bringing them forward a year. So if you want to get a prospectus, let me know. And I'm working with IMG. Did you see the sort of the future of it? Because my memory of the early part of the business model, and you'll remember this a lot better than me, but there wasn't a lot of money going back to the owners and teams are really, really struggling. There's no way you could invest in something like the IPL without thinking that you were investing for a five or a 10-year period, I would have thought. So did you think this could be massive going forward? Yeah, look, it's always easy to be smart with hindsight. and <laughs> We clearly thought it was a sensible investment opportunity, otherwise we wouldn't have done it. But you're spot on about the economics in the sense that the thing that was clear to us was you'd have to be able to invest for at least three to four years. I remember when we did our models, the only thing you could be certain of, or not certain of, but that you could be more certain of, was the television income levels and what your annual franchise fee cost was going to be. And where we, as a you know, as the Revstar Royals, saw an opportunity was if we could keep player costs low and we didn't pay more than X for a franchise, you know, we just about got to a model that would lose a bit but not lose a huge amount. And in fact, I think from memory, we'd sort of budgeted to have cumulative losses about 15 to $20 million. What a lot of people missed at the start was because the headline franchise fees were sort of 70, 80, 90, 100. A lot of people thought that's what was paid out, that that was the size of check that you needed. Mm. But it was actually crystal clear in the prospectus that that money was paid over 10 years. So what you had to do was build a model and forecast what your losses were going to be. But as you said, to your first point, I think most people expected four to five years of losses. But, you know, again, as we modeled it and as we thought about it, had it been a complete disaster, you clearly wouldn't keep investing after years, two years, three. So your losses were capped at some level. Yeah. But as you, as we've seen, the opportunity was if the thing flew, it would be very attractive. So, you know, I was a general manager of one of the um, CPL teams briefly and, you know, worked for you know quite a lot of franchises over the last couple of years. There's a lot of hobby owners. Yeah. There's a lot of owners who get involved because they see it as a, a way of getting David Warner on their Instagram page and, you know, all those sorts of things, which is fine if you have the money and you can afford to do it. And that was certainly the case within the IPL. We saw people who were very, very rich who were like, this is cool. We could have Kyron Pollard on our team and Lesif Malinga on our team. It never felt from day one that Rajasthan went in with that way. It always felt that you guys went in with a very, very business background. And you thought, yeah. if you're going to invest your money in something that's going to work, it'd be nice if it was cricket. But it was almost a secondary thing, I thought, to you guys. Then it was a good business decision and it happened to be cricket. Is that more how you saw it? Yeah, look, I think, well, first, it's nice of you to say that. And I think that's sort of true, right? I mean, I, I guess where we're perhaps a little bit different is, you know, we don't have major business interests in India and, you know, therefore some of those opportunities for kind of conflating the two, et cetera, you know, don't exist. We always said that we want our franchise to be about the cricket first and foremost, because if we get the cricket right, which clearly last season and, you know, even potentially currently this season, we haven't been, but if we get the cricket right, you know, I was massively inspired by the whole Billy Bean Moneyball story. My day job is, you know, everything that, I've been involved in building with my business partner, Charles, over the last 22 years has been in technology and data. So I'm a bit of a nerd in terms of believing that stuff is going to be really, really important for the game. And, and look, when you're investing your own money, I think uh, it's always surprised me actually how many really smart business people kind of leave their brains at the door 
when it comes to sports investing. But we did all the boring stuff, right? We had budgets, we had board meetings, we had governance, we had all the things we do in all of our other Blenheim Charcot businesses we tried to do. Some we got right and you know, we still made some bad decisions along the way as well. The Moneyball stuff's obviously quite interesting, especially for me as I've gone on to, you know, work in cricket analytics and, you know, being an analyst, as I was saying before. So it was there and thereabouts. I know like the odd county team would come up with something random. And obviously Krishna Tunga, the Indian, uh, had worked with John Buchanan. So it wasn't like no one was doing it, but it was done in a very small fry way. How did you go from not owning a cricket team to owning Oakland Athletics cricket team, essentially? Just want to make sure I understand the question, Jared, in terms of the analytics side of it. Well, yeah, like, I mean, if you think about it, cricket is quite old fashioned, as we both know. And there had been no template really in cricket to be as analytics driven as you guys were. It wasn't like baseball where it was filtering in slowly. You almost took it from zero to 100. So how do you have meetings with people with that? Or is it just if you're the team owner, it's an easier conversation? Thanks for clarifying. It's a really simple answer, actually. You know, I went outside of cricket. So when we got the franchise, I mean, firstly, we put our probability of getting the franchises quite low because we knew we were operating to a specific budget. So there were really only three franchises. We bid for two because you had to put your first choice, second choice, third choice. We bid for two. So we weren't certain we were going to deal with it. But I remember, I think it was January, we got the franchise. And I think in February, I spent two weeks in the US from a cross-section of sports, meeting with a number of the leading sporting franchises to not just learn about analytics, actually, just to learn about how they ran a sports franchise, you know, what they were doing with content, what they were doing with camps, what they were doing with analytics. And, and you know, look, I think we get credited a lot with having sort of perhaps catalyzed the use of analytics within the game. To be clear, I think we've done certain things really well. I actually think we've fallen a bit behind and actually, my number one priority right now is to hire a uh, you know a new chief analyst, chief data scientist within the franchise. Because when I look now, what for example Billy Bean does at, at the Oakland A's, you know we're we're a mile off it. And I think we've got a bit too consumed by what's going on in cricket rather than doing what we did ten years ago, which is look at what's going on outside of cricket. If I go hang out with the team, you know the Fenway Sports have up at Liverpool, it's miles ahead of where we are, and so. You know, while we've been a bit consumed over the last year with dealing with the challenges of COVID uh, and whether the tournament's on or off, analytics, you know, I think we need a massive reinvestment in that. No, I think you're definitely right there. I will apply for the job after the podcast. I won't do it now. But but no, no, I, I think you're right. If you read a book like The MVP Machine, written by a couple of baseball writers, you do realize the different levels and cricket is sort of stuck in, uh, I think it's come incredibly far to be fair to it as well, but it's a little bit stuck in thinking about cricket, whereas I think the other sports have just bolted away. I also think the analytics question is misunderstood in the sense that, you know, whenever we talk about analytics, we've got this image of a guy staring at a, a laptop and sort of figuring out whether Neil Wagner's the best left armor in the New Zealand team or whatever it is, right? But to me, that's the easy part of the analytics conundrum. The much harder parts of the analytics conundrum are firstly, how do you get all the data that is out there? So in cricket, I think we capture some data. We've started to capture things like bat speeds. We've started to capture, you know, through Hawkeye trajectories of ball. But we haven't even really started. And, you know, that needs an investment in cameras. It needs an investment in thinking about things like field positions. We haven't really moved the conversation around field positions forward like 30 years. I mean, the notion that we still have the same names for field positions when anyone knows now a 2020 field 
today on a quick wicket in India is utterly different to any field you could possibly set a Lords on a green wicket on a cold day. So firstly, there's what data sets do we go and look at and get? And there, I'm really interested in the whole psychology triggers as well, because again, we've got, we know anecdotes like, yeah, you know, Sansei's in a really good space. He's got married recently. He's a lot calmer. He's a lot more thoughtful about his game. How do you actually go and get, what data sets do you go and get? And the bit that's really hard uh, and the bit that I actually think we collectively have to do a much better job is how do you get players to buy into the data? Yeah. Right? That's what's really yeah. difficult, which is that you can take a, a gun gun player like a Joss Butler and have the best data and the best analysis on where he should or shouldn't bat in T20 cricket. But if you can't get him to buy into it, which by the way, most analysts can't because analysts are of a particular type of DNA, it's kind of no point even bothering with the data. And it's a bit like I see that in business all the time where I work with brilliant technologists and brilliant data analysts, but the data is only as effective as your ability to apply it. A lot of that resonates with my career. When people ask me how I got by as an analyst, I always say, well, I would just sit in the bar and make them think I was an alcoholic and they would come by and chat to me and they would forget that I was the analyst that we would talk about. So you always have to trick them and yourself. But all that is really interesting. The fielding stuff that you're talking about, spatial tracking cameras at cricket grounds is my absolute dream. But I'm not going to nerd out on this because I've probably done an entire podcast about that before. Okay, so you now have a team. You've gone to America. You're learning about how to put a sporting franchise together kind of from the nuts and bolts. How do you come up with names and colours and and all that sort of stuff? And also, in your your situation, you've changed your colour palette. How do those sorts of things happen? Look, I think that's where the benefit of spending 22 years or or certainly by 2008, uh, you know, at least 10 years, having built businesses from scratch. You know, like when you're building an internet related business. You've got to do all of that stuff. You've got to come up with brands. You've got to come up with digital presence. That stuff actually was relatively easy for us. And it's a combination of hiring the right people, using the right experts, using the right agencies. What was challenging actually about the IPL was the speed at which you had to do it. I mean, everyone forgets from the franchise award to the day the first ball was bowled in Bangalore, I think from memory it was about 38 days. I mean, it was some ridiculously short period of time. And, you know, to sort of create all of that infrastructure in that time frame was very, very difficult. Just on your colour change, there were sort of two drivers of that, which were, if you look at the Mumbai Indians colour, pre-RR getting suspended and ours, there was a kind of clear distinction in the blue. But sort of while we were suspended, the Mumbai colour got closer and closer to ours. So we were keen to have a point of difference when we came back. And so that was forcing a lot of conversation about kit colour. And actually the pink came out of a decision we made to make a core purpose of the franchise female empowerment in India. And so we had actually first wore pink for a particular game where we announced the launch of our foundation and the fact that a significant share of our profits would go towards female empowerment causes from day one. We played in pink. And actually, the truth is, I could give you a really sophisticated answer, but the truth is, everyone just said, wow, it looks really good on TV. You know, why don't you play in that all the time? When we said, actually, you know what? CSK have done a brilliant job of owning yellow. Let's own pink because it speaks to the female empowerment, which is what we want to be famous for. I mean, your team is, I find Rajasthan 
Very, very interesting. I mean, you've got winning the title early on. You talked about the spot fixing, but the pink thing is another one where not only that, you had your players doing things for menstruation and everything during, I think it was during the last season, but also the push to England. Now, obviously you are English based. And as you said before, you don't have business interests in India, but I wouldn't say that there's been a huge pickup of the IPL in England. And yet, well, your team has certainly been at the forefront of that. Is that because of a business idea or is that because you're based here or where's the thought process for that? Again, I think like everything, there's a bit of a thought process, but there's also a bit of circumstance and luck. Just to say one thing though, Jared, I, you know, I think you're right about the IPL in, in England in terms of traditional cricket fans. I, it's still growing. What's fascinated me about England, you know, as someone that lives here and is here, is how the IPL indexes amongst 10 to 18-year-olds. Oh, yeah. It's off the charts. And that was the revelation for me, at least. And that really took off when Sky, if you remember in the first few years, it kind of flipped between channels. And then BT Sport and Sky really kind of got hold of it, I think in about season four, season five. And it was consistently shown and they, they invested in the studios. Um, and because of the time of day, 3.30 to 7.30 or whatever it was, that was perfect for kids coming home from school. And so even though my mates would be like, yeah, this IPL stuff, I don't really watch it. Actually, my kids and their friends were like, they knew everything about the IPL and trading cards and stuff like that. So I think the UK is a really important market. I think it's a really interesting market. We've got the diaspora here. Everyone says, did you pick Butler, Stokes and Archer because they're English? And the answer is no. We picked Butler, Stokes and Archer because they're great players and we got them at good prices in the auction. To some extent, that is when our English fan following really took off because we had such an English backbone. But, you know, your player selection is made on the basis of cricketing needs. But to come back to your question, we've been explicit that we want to be the international fans franchise of choice, both here, you know, in Australia and in the Caribbean. Here's one I want to know. A lot of these leagues around the world, these T20 leagues, the teams are kind of pop up. They're almost like a rock concert and you bring in all the bands together and they disappear. The IPL is a little bit more... What would you say? It exists a little bit more than that. I know that there is still a disappearing act at a certain point. When you own a team that is suspended for two years, how do you run that? How does that work from a logistics point of view? If that was in that CPL, I would know that it wouldn't matter because they don't have anyone there. But for you guys, you would have had staff and all these different things. How does that work? Yeah, it's a really good question. And 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 the short answer is tough, right? I mean, the first decision we made is, you know, we were going to keep the team together which we did that's bluntly a financial decision it wasn't a huge amount for the team to do but the second thing the thing we did do and the way we did use that two-year period was to do a ton of introspection around our structure and also our three to four-year plan and so we were really clear we had to change the ownership structure in some quite dramatic ways and that takes time that takes planning that takes organization and we're probably half a step away from completing that in the next month or so. But, you know, I was very clear that, you know, I wanted to get sort of complete control of the franchise so that the noise, as it were, would dissipate. Uh, so that was actually a, a chunk of work and, and discussions with the BCCI and working through some of that. So that kept at least half the team pretty busy. And then the other half, it was like, okay, when we come back, what are we going to do differently? What are we going to do differently commercially? And what are we going to do differently from a playing perspective and you know the two big themes we focused on there were we'd always set our goal as a franchise pre-suspension as making the playoffs 
right? Because we were operating on tight budgets. We said our goal is making the playoffs. And we said, no, we want to come back now post-suspension. This will sound ironic given what we've actually delivered and spend as much as anyone else and not be competitively disadvantaged by the salary purse and compete to win. And so we went for a very young squad that we felt we could build you know, really invest in over four to five years. That was the cricketing decision. And then the off-field decision was, I was embarrassed by actually our digital content and our digital presence. And given that that's supposed to be what we do for a living, we really wanted to start investing there. The other big difference, of course, was pre-suspension, our franchise and, and most of the franchises weren't really making any money. I mean, they, they might've been making a bit or they might lose a bit depending on where they finished coming back post-suspension with a new TV deal in place, you suddenly had capital to invest, right? So these franchises now, all of the franchises are now highly profitable, and that gives you the capital to invest, which allows you to take some longer-term and more thoughtful decisions. You guys obviously won in the first year. I think it was a bit of an upset, even if we didn't really know what was going to happen in the league. You know, it was a bit of a surprise. You've said that you wanted to make the playoffs every year after that, and now you want to go for more. How much smarter, though, do you think the league is now? You kind of took everyone by surprise a little bit in that first year. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, as an analyst, sometimes I look at it and I still think, oh, teams don't need to be doing this. I mean, the first ball today, David Warner took a risky single, and I was like, he's been run out twice. You don't need risky singles. Please stop doing this. But it's quite clear. Some of the thinking and the thought process that goes into this, it just seems so much smarter. Whereas when you guys won the league, it was like, couple of teams were starting to cotton on to it and you guys just were ahead of the game. It's not like that anymore, is it? No, you're spot on. I mean, and I think that's where we've perhaps underestimated sort of in having been out for two years and then coming back. I think all the teams, whether it comes to matchups, whether it comes to analysts, whether it comes to prep, whether it comes to nutrition, whether it comes to training drills, the margins between teams now are so, so narrow. The challenge, you know, I've put to the guys really for this next cycle, because we've got a really big cycle coming up now, which is the you know, the big auction next year, is what are our new points of difference? Because right now, I don't think we've got any. I mean, I think in the auctions, you used to be able to spot a player and buy a player that literally no one else was bidding for. You know, that just doesn't happen anymore. You know, you might get a bit lucky on one player, or, but, you know, the data's out there, the stats are out there. So, yeah. I'm sort of agreeing with you, really. But that's what I love about, again, my day job with our digital businesses, which is points of difference only last for 12 months in the digital world. And what we're starting to see in the sporting world is points of difference only last for a couple of seasons. So you've got to be constantly challenging yourself. I personally think, and this is where, going back to one of your earlier questions, you need to ask more questions to people outside of the game. Mm. If I only talk to cricket people about cricket, I sort of know what answers I'm going to get especially from the greats of the game, right? Because why would they want to rewire their brains any differently? Whereas you go talk to Billy Bean about what he's doing, you know, with his analytics setup, or you go talk to you know, Billy Hogan about what he's doing commercially with his CRM platforms, or you, you know, that's where you push your learning and that's where you try things. And a bit like our day job, your cricket is not an environment where players naturally, coaches naturally, and owners naturally want to take risks. But I think you've got to, by definition, if you want to find a point of difference that's new, it's got to therefore be innovative and you've got to be prepared for it to be a failure. 
on a sort of total plan with everything you've just said there, where do you see, I suppose, the league in 10 years and Rajasthan's place? And I'm not saying you're going to own the team for the next 10 years. For all I know, you're about to do a big deal off camera here and sell the whole thing. But where do you see Rajasthan's place in the league? And also, where do you see the league going? Again, back into my sort of day job as a sort of digital technology business builder, we tend to think in three-year cycles. I just think there's so much change and there's so much volatility in the world sort of anything more than that sort of irrelevant if i'll answer the question with a three-year perspective i think that there are going to be some really important changes in the game over the next three years in terms of formats in terms of number of games played in terms of recognition that the game is owned by the fans and by the players i mean some of the stuff that you highlighted and have highlighted in both your film documentaries and your podcast these are actually really important issues And I think sports fans are beginning to wake up finally that, you know, how the game is governed, it's not as exciting as talking about whether Warner should bat one or three or Bearstow should bat two or four. It's not as exciting, but actually it's really important. So I think there's going to be a really interesting period of change uh, around some of that stuff. And soccer's just highlighted that beautifully in the last week and a half, right? I mean, soccer fans have been consumed by the governance of the game. Who would have thought that? even six months ago. So I think there's going to be some big changes there. I think in terms of the IPL, the IPL is now a third of the world's cricket economy. It is the most important league in the economy. And with that comes responsibility to think about what we're putting back into the game, what we're doing to develop the women's game, which I think, by the way, could absolutely fly across the world if we make the right choices around it, what we're doing to develop young talent, but also what we're doing to develop other leagues in other countries. Because I don't think it's in the IPL's interest for there to be no other strong domestic competition. So we, there's a lot of things for the broader sort of IPL ecosystem to think through and to support. And I suppose to come to your actual question, where would I like Rajasthan to be? I'd like us to be famous for always just trying to push those points of difference and push those points of innovation, to be trying things that are new You know, we're never going to be the richest team. We're never going to be the biggest team because we don't have a captive area like Bombay, Delhi or Calcutta. So we're often cited as being everyone's second favourite team. Well, that's not a bad place to be. And then from a purpose perspective, if we can impact female empowerment in India and if in seven years' time you and I are having a beer and saying, you know what, the Royals actually made a difference to female empowerment in India, then I think we put something back into the country as well. It's really, really fascinating. I'll let you go, but just last thing, when you own a team and the team is losing, I mean, you've been a fan of sports teams your whole life, right? And I know what it's like to work for a team, but also know that at the end of the year, I might lose my job. This is your team until you sell it. Emotionally, is it a much higher level than being a normal fan? Definitely. You know, that works both ways, right? When you win a game and when, like me, you're a pretty average sportsman and you kind of realize unfortunately quite early on that you're never ever going to get close to any sort of elite sporting experience it's the sort of next best thing right in terms of the positives and as you rightly say when you lose I mean it's incredibly frustrating and there's something about cricket funny enough where your Warner run out comment is a really interesting one because if you're a cricket fan you're so consumed by specifics of the game and everything's so measurable You know, whereas in a soccer game, you can watch a Liverpool Man U game and not get too excited about what the left back did because actually the left back was innocuous. 
in cricket, everything is so measurable and visible. You end up just kind of not sleeping for a night after you've lost and analysing each over and analysing the role of each player and analysing selection. Yeah, I always said one of the rules I made when we got the franchise was there's a really important line from the dressing room door from the owners. In South Africa, they introduced this concept of owners' dugouts. And, you know, I said over my dead body, are we ever going to sit in a dugout, right? I mean, we're owners. We're not part of the playing squad. So I've always been clear on that line. But I'd also be lying if I said that there haven't been times when you cross the line with your opinions because, you know, you're in the bar and you're passionate and you care and and you say things to people you perhaps shouldn't say. So uh, that's why I'm in London, why the IPL is going on in India. I mean, I've certainly never had any conversations like that with any owners before that I would like to speak about. Uh, your book is called New Innings. You wrote it with Yossa, so people can go out and get that. But thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Not at all, Jared. And if I could just do one plug, which is much more important than the book, right now, it's a super important time. The next few weeks are going to be incredibly important for India. It's a really difficult time. There's reported numbers, but everyone knows the impact of coronavirus right now is as dramatic as it can be. So if there's anything that your viewers, listeners can do to help, and if there are viewers and listeners that don't know what they can do to help, you know, I just point you at the British Asian Trust emergency appeal because the one thing I'll guarantee is the money and we're raising you know hundreds of thousands of pounds right now the money that comes into that appeal will be very effectively deployed and uh, you know I just want to really empathize with people in the country right now beautiful very well put thanks for coming on Thanks for listening to Red Inca. There is more information on my guests available in the show notes including their Twitter profiles if they have one. This is the important bit, though. Please review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere, really. Share it on all the social medias and just get it out there. If you can, act it out in plays on your balcony with your loved ones. This podcast is made possible by the people who support us at Patreon, so thanks to those who already do. And there is a link to Patreon in the show notes as well. Red Inca is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston makes everything sound better for your ears, and the theme tune is called The Prisoner by The Red Crickets.